Speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Superman. Yes, Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman. Who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights the never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome back to episode 149 of the Man of Screen podcast. The hiatus is over, and I am back. I am refreshed. Well... Maybe not so much refreshed, but I am back to enter into this new phase of the podcast going into the latter half of 1988. The last thing I covered in episode number 148 was Superman 4, The Quest for Beasts. That was summer of 1987. Now there was about a year plus hiatus of Superman material. I'm ready to head into the uh, next portion, which will mostly comprise of the Adventures of Superboy TV series, but not yet. Before I get into any Superboy coverage, I this episode and the next will include coverage of the Ruby Spears animated Superman show, which lasted 13 episodes in 1988. Just judging from what I've seen so far, it's kind of unfortunate that it was only 13 episodes, as I would have liked to have seen a whole lot more of this show. But this is a chronological podcast, so while it might make more sense to do the 13 episodes of Ruby Spears before entering into Superboy, I am going to continue to kind of march through time. So I will be covering the Ruby Spears show this episode and the next. And then with episode 151, I will begin coverage of Superboy. And pretty much since the shows will overlap in release date, they'll pretty much alternate until I run out of Ruby Spears episodes, which won't take too long because there will only be about... Seven episodes of Ruby Spears coverage, and then the rest will be the 80-some-art adventures of Superboy. So, what I like to do when I begin something new is to talk a little bit about the background and a little bit about the Ruby Spears show, that it is a 1988 animated Superman television series. Obviously, it's a cartoon, which was produced by Ruby Spears Enterprises. This is why it's called the Ruby Spears Superman. For And it aired on CBS uh, featuring Superman, which is kind of a no-brainer. The uh, head writer was comic book veteran uh, Marv Wolfman. Superman fans know him uh, from he was part of the team that rebooted Superman in the comics after Crisis on Infinite Earths, even though his uh, contribution was rather short-lived before John Byrne became pretty much the sole voice of Superman comics for about two years, right through Superman number 22, the end of the Supergirl saga. This series is the third animated Superman series. The second was the... uh, Filmation produced Adventures of Superman, and obviously the first was the Fleischers back in 1941. This show kind of takes the best of all eras of Superman. Lex Luthor it has been reimagined as the uh, businessman Lex that was introduced in The Man of Steel and the, and the post-crisis era. We'll be seeing Luthor wears his uh, kryptonite ring, and we're also going to get from the Daily Planet portions a very uh, 
George Reeves Adventures of Superman vibe when you see how the characters relate to each other. There'll be a lot of Perry yelling, Great Caesar's Ghost. And for those of you who remember the George Reeves show, Jimmy Olsen would run afoul of the Chief quite a bit. You're going to see a lot of that here. And uh, Lois remains an assertive woman with initiative. And there was a new character, Ms. Morganberry, who uh, kind of an assistant to Lex Luthor. She is very reminiscent of Ms. Tessmacher from Superman, the movie. And the portions of Superman 2 that she was in. And even, and as I go through this first episode, you're going to see a lot of callbacks to Superman, the movie. There was, in addition to the about, I'll say, 18-minute Adventures of Superman episodes, there is about a five-minute segment at the end called the Superman Family Album, which is basically uh, like four-minute little shorts about Superman growing up as a kid. The uh, first episode... That I'll cover at the back end of the next segment is basically about how he's adopted by the Kents. And the final segment kind of covers like Clark as a baby, and those family album shorts kind of go right up to the end with uh, Clark becoming Superman. So they are, like I said, they this show will take a lot of the best of different versions. The post-crisis Superman, his powers developed slowly, so we didn't have powers as a, ch- as a baby. You're going to see in these segments, for the sake of entertainment, obviously, there's going to be a lot of Clark having abilities, you know, right out of the gate, like his pre-crisis counterpart did. And a lot of these are kind of, at least the ones that I'm going to talk about today, are very uh, reminiscent of some of the Super Baby stories from the Silver Age. One of these days, uh, Bob Fisher and I are going to get together on, on his show, Superman Forever Radio, and talk some Super Baby. It has not happened yet. I'll ha- I might have to uh, nudge him a little bit. So those segments are going to show... Uh, Clark as he kind of goes through uh, milestones uh, of his life. So we have that to look forward to as well. Now, the cast, uh, Bo Weaver is uh, Superman and Clark Kent. It's uh, taking me a little bit of time to uh, get used to uh, Weaver in the role. Uh, Unfortunately, he only has 13 episodes, but he does okay. He seems like a younger Superman than I'm used to uh, hearing. Jenny McSwain uh, plays the role of Lois Lane primarily. She also is uh, Janet Clyburn in one episode, Ursa in another, and... Feyora in another. Oh, and both Ursa and Feyora are going to appear in the same episode. So that's going to be uh, interesting when we get to that. Michael Bell played the role of Lex Luthor. And in uh, another episode, he'll be a character called Patron. Michael Bell is an alum of the Super Friends cartoon. Uh, he uh, he played Zan and uh, Gleek, some of my favorite parts of the Super Friends cartoon. Tress McNeil was Martha Kent. Alan Oppenheimer, whose name sounds familiar, but why it does is escaping me at... Uh, at this point in time, he was a rather uh, prolific voice actor, but I don't think he's really uh, done anything that would really stand out to me. So, but he is the role that plays the role of Jonathan Kent. Stanley Ralph Ross is Perry White, and he is a character called Styrock in another episode. Lynn Marie Stewart is uh, Miss Morganberry. That's Alexis' girlfriend. And in the uh, family album segment, she also plays the young Clark Kent. Which is not surprising. It's not unusual for uh, women to play the roles of uh, prepubescent boy characters as uh, their voices have not always uh, dropped. Oh, an interesting note about Bo Weaver. He uh, eventually would go on to play Mr. Fantastic in the 1994 Marvel animated series, The Fantastic Four. So I just kind of noticed that at the top of my notes and uh, forgot to mention it when I talked about Mr. Weaver. Anyway, to round out the cast, uh, Mark Taylor... He also uh, is an alum of uh, the Super Friends. He played Firestorm. He is Jimmy Olsen, so another young character for uh, Mark Taylor. And Bill Woodson uh, gives the opening narration. He is uh, 
also an import from the Super Friends. You know, a lot of the Super Friends narration that is attributed to Ted Knight, a lot of that actually is Bill Woodson, including, I believe, meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice. I think that's something that came that, be, that came later, as Ted Knight only did, I believe, the first season, as I recall. I'd have to go back and look at the previous episodes, but so he's back to doing the opening narration, the faster than a speeding bullet and all that that you heard at the uh, beginning of the episode. So that is uh, just uh, some background on the Ruby Spears Superman cartoon, 13 episodes, just from the episodes I've watched so far. It's kind of a shame that it's only 13 episodes, but them's the breaks. As far as my own experience with this show goes, I knew it existed. I remember it existing, but kind of like Super Friends, I don't really remember specifics. We're really not going to get to me remembering specifics until season three of Superboy, and then I pretty much remember everything. So, a little more review, a little less retrospective until we get to season two of Superboy. So now, before we get into the business at hand, I have feedback to address from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen episode 138. Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. Well, it does seem like this lost season of the Super Friends is wound down not with a bang, but with a whimper. One small step for Superman obviously took its title from Neil, Armstrong, from Neil Armstrong's words on taking the first human steps on the moon in 1969. I'm in agreement with you that the Super Friends tricking the boy Grant into walking because they knew his paralysis was all in his mind was, wasn't really the best approach. If for no other reason, then they're not medical professionals and could have been completely wrong. Also, like you, I was expecting someone to find Lucy the dog by the end of the story. Completely off topic, whenever I hear of a dog named Lucy, I always wonder if the dog was named after Lucy Lane because she always seemed to be a bit of a bitch in her treatment of Jimmy Olsen. <laughs> and uh, just uh, for your clarification, uh, Dave uh, self-censored himself when he wrote that. In Video Victims, I did like Samurai's comment that a good samurai not only knows the ancient customs of Japan, he knows the modern customs as well. I took that as a nod to uh, Japan's pioneering development of video games. I can imagine Samurai spending time developing his skills in a video arcade. Playgrounds of Doom reminded me a bit of the classic Star Trek episode, The Squire of Gothos, with the superpower alien Trelane, who turned out to be a child, perhaps a child of the later discovered Q Continuum. In this Super Friends story, though, we know pretty much from the start that these are kids, so we can guess that their parents will show up at some point to deal with them. I'm looking forward to your coverage of the Legendary Superpowers show, especially for the longer stories and perhaps a better set of villains. Live long and prosper, Dave. So as always, uh, Dave, thank you for writing in. I don't know if I have a ton to add to what Dave has written. I do agree that, you know, a lot of the Super Friends seasons seem to have gone out with a whimper, especially the later ones. And I had talked about this before. It doesn't matter what order these episodes have air in because they're all one-off stories. So I really do wonder if they just put the best foot forward and then kind of fizzled out toward the end, figuring, you know what, you might lose kids toward the end of the season and you kind of just trail off at the end. I really don't know. I am in total agreement with uh, Dave on One Small Step for Superman and uh, the way Super Friends handled Grant. I just thought that was completely irresponsible. The same about video and video victims, I agree also. And uh, I'm not sure if Samurai spent a lot of time developing his skills in a video arcade, but he he does know that uh and by this point in the eighties, Japan was becoming uh or was already a very uh well known developer of electronics. And uh the playground of doom, yeah, I agree. It's kind of annoying and the super powered children playing with the super friends, and yeah, the parents do kind of come back to uh put an end to the fun at the end. So 
hopefully with better content, Dave's letters will uh, generate a little more discussion than uh, this particular one did. So that being said, I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, and when I come back, we'll begin coverage of the Ruby Spears Superman with Destroy the Devendroids and The Adoption. Hang around, folks. Afternoon, everybody. Ryan! How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure, gotta give my mouth something to do between podcasts. Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were Dagobah system. Now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about cheers, yeah. That kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Network. All right, welcome back, folks. All of the episodes of this segment had an original broadcast date of September 17th, 1988. And we're going to start with Destroy the Defendroids. And this was written by series lead writer Marv Wolfman. And all of our synopses are brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. Lex Luthor puts into place a force of robots called the Defendroids to protect Metropolis in an effort to make Superman redundant. Aren't they wonderful? My friends, you've just seen a little demonstration of my latest invention. The Defendroids! The Defendroids! (laughs) Luthor. I should have known that slimy snake was behind this. Crime is up, my fellow citizens! And what has Superman done? Zip! Zilch! Zero! Oh, but he arrests a few jaywalkers and muggers. (laughs) But do you feel safe at night? No! No! Superman's past tense. Old hat. Seen better days. But my Defendroids are today state-of-the-art and even better. I'm donating them free of charge to fight crime in our fair city. I think I'm going to be sick. Playing along, Superman announces his retirement, allowing Luthor to continue his devious plan to use his Defendroids to steal a large shipment of gold being hauled by train. With Lois' help, Superman stops the robots, but not before Luthor had successfully distanced himself from the altercation with an excuse to the mayor. I hate him! I hate him! I'm the world's most brilliant criminal scientist, but that muscle-bound clown always interferes with my plans! And I'll continue to do so, Luthor. Superman? But, well, I'm so pleased you came to visit. The mayor told me you stopped my runaway Defendroids. Congratulations. Runaways? What are you trying to pull? What, you know machines? There was a short circuit and I called to warn the mayor when he told me you were back in town. You you can't imagine how relieved I was. Oh well, faulty programming I guess. Maybe next time. There won't be a next time, Luthor. As soon as I can prove what you're up to, you'll be spending the rest of your life behind bars. Up, up, put away! 
All right, so first I want to, you know, being this is the first episode of this show, I want to make a note of the opening. And the showrunners did shell out a little bit of money so they could get some of the John John Williams theme. And, you know, they don't get a ton of it, but they get enough. And the music is played behind a narration similar to that of the George Reeves show. And it used various clips that I assume are going to be from episodes throughout the season. Uh, one of the prominent ones is... Uh, of a giant ape outside the Daily Planet. I can only assume that's Titano. And the montage ends with a great shirt rip. It's a nice-looking Superman, and I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing this art, which I don't know if I mentioned this in the opening, but Marv Wolfman being the head writer, Gil Kane uh, is the inspiration for a lot of the uh, character designs. So we open with Superman and Lois flying together. The pose, uh, his arms out, holding her kind of uh, far away from his body. It's kind of a Reminiscent of what we saw in the first uh, Reeve movie when they flew. You know, right when Superman dropped her. And there's some kind of uh, tank and robot attacking what resembled the New York Public Library. And when I say it resembles the New York Public Library, for those of you who either have been to the New York Public Library or are familiar with the 1984 film Ghostbusters, know of the big lions outside of uh, the museum. Had a kind of funny... Um, my daughter, uh, my older daughter, Haley, who you've heard on this show before, most recently uh, during my Shazam episode, and also uh, when we went to see Superman in the movie in, uh, in the theater last year, she went with my mother and my sister to New York City to see uh, the Frozen musical. And apparently they walked by the library and she pointed it out as uh, the library from Ghostbusters. So I thought that was kind of uh, funny when I heard that when they came home. So Superman leaves Lois and he tells her to stay back. You know, right. Like, Lois is going to stay back from... Uh, what appears to be a, a Superman battle. So the tank is unmanned, which means Superman can do whatever he wants with it. And, and then there's this other robot that's floating around, which bears a slight resemblance to an Imperial probe droid from the Star Wars films. And uh, as we're out and about, Lois runs into some trouble. And of course, Lois shows up and Superman has to make a save. And <laughs> I basically love how Superman just kind of unceremoniously blew this robot right out of a window. And uh, he wraps things up and he carries the tank off with him and Right off the bat, we're treated to a well-done Superman fighting sequence and rescue of Lois. You know, we like to say uh, that all good Superman stories start at the Daily Planet, but you know what? Starting here with Superman and Lois and with a robot battle, that's not a bad way to start either. So here's Lex Luthor, who's freaking out, and he yells for uh, Miss Morganberry, much uh, the way he would yell for Miss Tessmacher. There's our boy in blue now. I believe this is yours, Luthor. Luxcore's name is etched on every part. My lawyer will send you the bill for removing that tank, soups. Meanwhile, uh, Jessica, give the gentleman his drink. Forget the drinks, Luthor. You're under arrest. Oh, I feel weak. Superman, what did you do to him? Oh, right, my ring. Lovely jewel, isn't it? I believe it's called kryptonite. And isn't kryptonite the only substance that can destroy you? Stop it, Luther. Oh, very well. Now then, I believe you are going to arrest me. Although, I can't imagine why. I'm a strictly legitimate businessman. You're not fooling anyone, Luthor. Nobody else possesses the evil genius needed to build that tank. Well, <laughs> I appreciate the compliment, but once parts leave my factory, they ain't mine no more. 
I mean, Mighty Motors isn't responsible if terrorists escape in one of their cars. A Colonel Burger isn't guilty if someone heists a bank after munching on their big bun. I'll be back. We're not through yet, Luthor. Actually, Soups, we're just beginning. And uh, Superman basically brings the tank to life. So this, uh, while this Superman is very reminiscent of the Reeve Superman, he'll, uh, he's got a little bit of an edge to him. He'll throw that tank in the pool, and uh, so Luthor knows how angry he is. And apparently there are LexCorp uh, markings all over the tank, so uh, that's why Superman brings the tank to Lex. Uh, Luthor makes some kind of quip about uh, how, uh, whether or not United Motors, which apparently is an analog of General Motors, is responsible if uh, a criminal drives their car, but... You know, Superman knows Lex Luthor. He's not buying it. And uh, Superman starts weakening as soon as he nears Lex. And like I mentioned in the opening, uh, this uh, Luthor is the businessman Lex of the comics, which at this point is was relatively new. It's, you know, old hat now and accepted for decades. But uh, this businessman Lex was a new thing back in 1988, only uh, two, or, two or so years old at this point. And uh, another thing that was in the comics, that... This might have run its course by then. 1988 was probably after Burn left. I don't remember when it, the exact timing of when Exile started or when the Supergirl saga ended. So, but anyway, uh, Luthor had a kryptonite ring pretty early on in the post-crisis run, and he has one here. I'm not really going to get into what becomes of the kryptonite ring in the comics, but I'm just noting that it does translate from the comics to the cartoon. So uh, Lex is very smug while he's drinking his... Uh, fruity drink i don't know if i really uh picture lex luthor drinking a little fruity drinks with umbrellas in them but it just doesn't seem very uh luthor but it's interesting that while he is the businessman lex he's also kind of written in the vein of gene hackman's lex uh you know he's uh quippy and sarcastic and it's very weird hearing lex call superman soups i'm so used to the uh, in the adapted media of the full name being used uh superman and uh like the shortening only uh, being used by uh, less reverent characters, so to speak. So that is definitely something to uh, get used to. Perhaps the use of uh, Michael Bell, who I don't think was really that young in 1988. I mean, this is a year after Encounter at Farpoint, the uh, Star Trek The Next Generation premiere, and Michael Bell, who played Groppler Zorn in the pilot episode Encounter at Farpoint, you know, wasn't particularly young. He wasn't very old either, but probably in his 40s. At least I can, that's what I'm guessing without looking it up. So he must—he sounds young, even if he isn't as young as he used to be. So now it's presumably the next day, and here are Lois and Clark. Uh, Clark is dressed in his, uh, what I call his pre-crisis Clark uniform, the blue suit, the white shirt, and the red tie. And, you know, as this goes, I'm still getting used to, uh, well, Weaver as Superman. He sounds like a younger Superman than I'm expecting. But So here we have some robots are attacking a very 80s-looking motorcycle gang member. And people are cheering for the robots because they're getting this these hooligans off the street. And apparently these robots are how Lex Luthor is going to outdo Superman. Lex is positioning himself as a, as better than Superman, which is what Luthor always tries to do. It's not enough to defeat Superman. He has to discredit him as well. And his Defendroids are the answer to that. And apparently Lex is going to donate them to the city and everyone is loving it. You know, except for Lois and Clark. How quickly the people of Metropolis forget as we're going to see. Metropolis, like uh, New York, which it's based on, is a very what-have-you-done-for-me-lately type of place. So now here's a fire, and uh, Superman is going to help, uh, and a robot just kind of swats him away. And we're treated to a great shot here of Superman flying toward the camera, and the shot just ends in on the S-Shield. Very, uh, very beautiful shot. Now, the robot saves these kids who 
looked just as scared as everyone. And uh, at first, I thought the kids were scared of the robot, but he grabs them. And uh, when the robot hands uh, the kids off to the parents, the young boy, he uh, gives the robot a kiss. You know, a kiss of thanks. Uh, very, uh, very cute and endearing to everyone. Yes, I did think it was cute. So apparently, uh, what we're going to find out is that all of these people that are basically uh, coming up to Superman and yelling at him may be actors. And a reporter comes up and asks Superman how it feels to be useless. Never mind the fact that he came out with an elderly couple in his arms. You know, he didn't save the kids. He saved the old people. So apparently he's useless. Luthor mentions that there are actors here. I don't know if just the reporter is the actor or if the cr- the crowd is seated with actors. But calling Superman useless after he pulled a couple of old la- old uh, people out of the uh, out of the fire is t- is a little much. A life saved is a life saved, and it's a good thing the robots were there to help out. But just because they're there doesn't make Superman useless. It's okay to have help once in a while. So clearly, Superman had a use. I'm sure those. Old people don't feel Superman is very useless right now. So now we're getting another scene right out of Superman the movie. As Perry is reading off the headlines of the other papers in Metropolis and is just throwing them down on the desk. Like he does at the staff meeting from Superman the movie. Subway disaster. Defendroids save all lives. Defendroids save child from well. Superman to speak to city council today. Superman quits. No. No. How can he do that? How can he just quit? It makes me want to turn in my typewriter. Luthor's Defendroids always get to the scene of the crime before Superman. Maybe they're just better than he is. Luthor's probably behind those crimes in the first place, just to make Superman look bad. Hey, I bet that's it, Perry. Let me write the story. Superman's still our greatest hero. And the planet has the headline of Superman quits. Really? Superman quits, and everyone is feeling like they want to quit what they're doing. You know, I know Superman is an influential figure, but this is kind of taking a metaphor a little too far, I think. And one, I don't really believe Superman would uh, necessarily quit because he had some help. And more on this in a few minutes. Lois is uh, quick to point out that Luthor's using uh, the Defendroids to uh, make Superman feel uh, unneeded. And even though she's right, she pretty much wants to write the story, which is based solely on her theory. That's not a very uh, ethical thing to do as a journalist. You need to have some facts to uh, back up what uh, you're trying to say. But even if you're writing an op-ed piece, you still need to back up your opinions with fact. You know, and there's a lot of a misconception. A lot of people who, you know, put, on, put their opinions out there. It's one thing to just run your mouth and put a, put a stream of, of thoughts out there. You know, when you do that, you're... Your thoughts still need to have some basis in reality if you want them to be taken seriously. I am not a person who considers every opinion to be valid. Just because someone has a thought doesn't mean it's valid. To me, opinions are formed, you form them based on facts that you know, or and then from there you can form a well-reasoned opinion. If you're just, you know, kind of shouting out into the ether because you heard something third-hand, I'm not going to take you very seriously. If I pay anything, if I pay any attention to you at all, I am definitely of the mind that opinion, you know, needs to be based on some kind of factual evidence, and just you know, you can't just vomit it out of, out of your mouth uh, without thinking about it a little bit first. If you can't explain why you have an opinion, I have no use for your opinion. So now that I half my audience has quit on me, I'm going to move on to uh, 
the next uh, portion of the show, which is apparently uh, Operation Nugget is uh, apparently some kind of uh, theft. We're going to find out later in the episode that Luthor is trying to steal the gold uh, from a train headed to Fort Knox. And uh, here comes uh, Jimmy Olsen. And basically what Luthor does is he creates an earthquake to uh, destroy the train tracks. So more on that later. Here comes Jimmy Olsen in the final office on a skateboard. And we get a very re- great, and we got a great Caesar's ghost out of Perry White. And uh, Perry asks if Olsen is crazy, which is very reminiscent of the 50s TV show. And um, Lois and Jimmy are leaving in the uh, Daily Planet RV. And they find that the earthquake and Lois drives the RV right into the hole in the ground. Again, reminiscent of Superman the movie. Although there, she didn't drive the uh, car into the earthquake. She kind of just ran out of gas and the uh, quake came and got her. The earthquake in Superman the movie had a little too much sentience for my uh, for my taste. Uh, if you want to understand more of that, go check out the fourth uh, part of Superman the movie month from October of 2018. So Jimmy and Lois get out of the uh, RV as uh, Clark changes to Superman who rescues them from the lava. They think Clark is still in the van, which has now been overrun by lava, so Superman makes a big show of going down into the lava to uh, rescue Clark. And I would think that being stuck in molten lava, the van would have melted pretty much immediately. Maybe it wouldn't, I don't know, but it's still pretty much intact. So we're going to find uh, that Clark's clothes are okay. He just left them there when he changed to Superman. And here's something that I think is very clever here. Superman wraps something up in his cape. Pretends it's Clark and says, I'm just going to take him home so he can rest it off. So that's kind of, I thought, a clever way to uh, kind of get Clark out of the picture so he can do what he needs to do as Superman. Lois is handled very well in this story as she is trying to kind of root things out. She's trying to put the pieces together of uh, the train uh, wreck and the earthquake and uh, what this is all going to lead to. So while he was in the lava, Superman uh, grabbed some kind of shard and apparently it was part of a bomb and... uh, Apparently, uh, Superman's plan was to make Lex believe that he had quit. Another note on the music, uh, the music during the episode isn't Williams, but it's Williams-esque, and it's keeping me in the episode, so there's that. So now we have a helicopter going to City Hall, and here are the uh, Defendroids, and they shoot down the uh, Daily Planet helicopter, or the Flying Newsroom. For robots that are purported to be heroic, that is not a very heroic act, if you ask me. So... I am really impressed with the animation in this episode. I really can't say that enough. I really, It really appeals to me, and it's a bummer that this show only got 13 episodes. I can tell that right from the uh, first 13. I don't know why the show didn't last very long, but first, from what I read in an inter- interview with Marv Wolfman, is that some of the people at the an- animation studio didn't want it, and but CBS was making them do it. So I guess after 13 episodes, if it didn't succeed the way they wanted to, they kind of just kind of cut their losses and did something else. Lois and Jimmy are imprisoned in the robot, and uh, this thing is taken at the Superman. And, of course, it has kryptonite eye beams and can launch itself into the air. And, despite everything else, Superman will pursue the robot. So, like I mentioned before, this is where we find out that Operation Nugget is a train going to Fort Knox, and it's full of gold bars. So, just as the guard says no one can break into the gold train, we're going to find some uh, the defense droids attacking the train. And, in yet another nod to Superman in the movie, Luther says you can never have enough ice cream, real estate, and money. Another nod to Superman in the movie. And Luthor says something similar in Superman Returns. It's all about the 78 film, obviously. So Superman is chasing uh, the uh, Defend droid and uh, throws the, an old satellite at it. And he disables it enough to uh, bring it back to Earth. So here we are. Uh, I'm not sure if Lois and Jimmy have there's any glass separating them from the outside of the robot. But after the big stink we made about this in uh, Superman 4 coverage, Jimmy and Lois don't have spacesuits and are in space. 
but they don't get out of the uh, defense droid, so I guess I can uh, maybe there's some kind of glass over the, the little holding compartment. I don't know. They can't see through it, though. So now we got a nice sequence of the robot burning up, and uh, Superman is struggling with uh, mass and gravity. So Superman rescues them from uh, the little uh, compartment, and the robot crashes. Now the other robots are attacking the train, and the weapons on the train are having no effect on them. The robots have the gold, and Superman is back, and Luthor is absolutely flummoxed because he thinks Superman has quit. Now, here is something that requires comment. Remember the Fleischer episode, The Mechanical Monsters, and how glorious it was that Superman was beating up on the robots? You would think that would happen here. It's not. Superman is going to reprogram the Defend Droid so he can save the train. And the robots destroy themselves. Do you know why Superman didn't punch the robots? Because some paper pusher at the standards and practice office, whoever censors these things for children, said robots have souls. Machines have souls. And this is a, and, for, and punching a robot would basically be equated to Superman punching a, a, a person. I know it's the 80s, but what are these people smoking? And can I have some? Robots do not have souls. A lot, a lot of us believe people do, and the spiritual experts will probably be debating that until the end of time, but robots do not have souls. I am pretty comfortable saying that. And since the robots have destroyed each other, isn't that pretty much the same thing as Superman punching them? It makes no sense. But what does make sense is that Luthor is freaking out because Superman is winning. So when uh, Superman shows up, Luthor tries to spin what happened. Although Superman clearly heard uh, Luthor complaining about, about him from this guy, but Luthor one step ahead. He called the mayor and said, oh yeah, that's uh, an accident. Luthor is lying. Superman's not buying it. And uh, Superman says, he will someday prove that Lex is a criminal. And, you know, yada yada, all that jazz. Good start. That was exciting. And I enjoyed that immensely. Good animation, good Daily Planet stuff. Just about everything I watched from a Superman story. I don't necessarily want uh, to hear about robots having souls. To the episode's credit, we didn't hear about that in the show, but I did read that in an interview with uh, Marv Wolfman, and the idea is just ridiculous. So, let's move right along to The Adoption, which is also written by Marv Wolfman. Martha and Jonathan discover a small infant in a crashed rocket ship, take the baby boy to an orphanage where they try to adopt him. However, there is a waiting line of couples looking to adopt. Although each couple quickly changed their mind thanks to pranks played upon them by the baby. I tell you, Conroy, it's almost as if the boy was purposely chasing those people away. But you're not doing that, are you? <sighs> Maybe he wants someone else to be his parents. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Come on, Conroy, let's see who's next on our list. He clearly wants to be adopted by Martha and Jonathan Kent. sakes Jonathan oh Martha what is you Martha how did he get all the way out here what do we do now Martha Clark can only one thing we can do and that's return him to the orphanage and convince Mr. Warner to let us adopt him ourselves <laughs> Clark Kent, that's your name now, and welcome to our wonderful, wonderful home. We're now a family.
So this is the first of the uh, Kent family album stories. Only fitting that the first episode is the adoption. And the Kents here are shown to be uh, an elderly couple. And uh, the headmaster here, Mr. Warner. I wonder if that's kind of a nod to Warner Brothers. You know, they prefer younger couples. I mean, uh, Jonathan and Martha are probably in, at least in their 50s here. A little bit older than you normally want to uh, adopt a child out to. But because they're old does not mean they're incapable. But I'm really guessing that Mr. Warner has no intention of letting the Kents adopt him. So I'm getting a very super baby feel out of this. And uh, I do feel as though I've read a lot of this before in various super baby stories. As there's one point where the baby tears apart the room. There is a Mrs. Walder who doesn't want any rough stuff, and uh, she faints when she sees what's going on. The next uh, couple shows up as the baby flies away and goes to the zoo and uh, basically plants a lion in his bedroom. And uh, we don't see what happens here, but uh, you can pretty much guess what happened. Basically, what happens in the comics is uh, they can't end up getting Clark because, at least in the Silver Age comics that I'm referring to, the orphanage adopts clark out to the cans just to get rid of him because he's causing so much trouble here i mean he was even then he was acting out because he wants the cans and even the headmaster is kind of wondering if that's possible that and i like the way the child is acting so to speak you know he seems uh, pretty true to what a toddler would do uh, my do- my own daughter is too a little bit older than the baby is being portrayed here but she says no easily and uh when she claps she says yes and uh, claps and nods so she can he can they communicate in a similar fashion. So, now, this evening, the baby flies out of the orphanage and into the Kent's bed. He snuggles up to them, and uh, that's uh, kind of cute. And uh, they wake up in the morning, and uh, Clark is kind of there between them. They really don't react much to Clark being there. I mean, I think if I woke up and found an unknown baby, well, not unknown, they know who he is. But if I woke up and found uh, an orphan child in my bed without my n- knowing how it got there, I'd, be, I'd at least be a little bit freaked out, but they're taking this in stride. So, their plan is to bring the baby back to the orphanage and convince Mr. Warner to let them adopt him. Which, we don't get to see that, but I can't, that's got to be a hard sell when you think about it. I mean, think about this. For, at some point, uh, Mr. Warner and whoever else works at the orphanage is going to realize that the baby is missing. And then here come the Kents strolling into the orphanage with the baby in their hands. What are they going to say? What would they say? Or maybe uh, if they're smart about this, and I thought about this just now, maybe they'll have him fly back, and then they'll come and adopt him later. I don't know. But at this point, you know, half the Jonathan says that uh, they'll convince them to uh, adopt him. Martha is already naming him before they even got out of bed. So it's a good thing they succeed in the adoption. Otherwise, Martha would probably would have been inconsolable. So another good episode. It was fun. It definitely incorporates some of the old uh, Super Baby material, but there was store. There was a story in the Silver Age where, like I said, the orphanage gave him to the Kents just because they were the only ones who seemed to be able to control him. But, you know, well done, short and sweet, just like it needs to be. Very Silver Agey. Now, as far as, you know, the concept of Super Baby, you can find in old uh, DC comics of the Silver Age, mostly adventure and maybe some action comics too, but there are several types of uh, Super Baby stories. There is, I like things like this, where it's basically the misadventures of Clark as a baby. You know, I don't want to see, you know, there's a story that Bob Fisher refers to a lot where during the trip to Earth, Super Baby has an adventure with Brainiac. You know, that I have that I have no interest in. But stuff like this, you know, or even the next one at the kind of the mischief at the supermarket. There's another one where the Kents uh, take him on a cruise ship and 
he gets lost and they end up having to adopt him again. So that kind of stuff is fun. So, and I'm anticipating at least some of these two early ones are just as fun. And then, you know, I also look forward to seeing the older milestones as we move on through Clark's life. So that's pretty good. So that was uh, pretty enjoyable. So let's take a quick break, play another promo, and then I'll come back to finish things off with Fugitive from Space and the family album, The Supermarket. Hang around, folks. A historic moment tonight. The Berlin Wall can no longer contain the East German people. It is 1989. After 28 years of dividing a city and symbolizing the divide of the Cold War, the Berlin Wall opens up. And from there, everything changes. Fallen Walls, Open Curtains is a podcast miniseries from Pop Culture Affidavit and hosted by me, Tom Paneris. From November 2019 until December 2021, I am going to take a look at the events that took place 30 years ago, beginning with the fall of the Berlin Wall and ending with the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Along the way, I will be flashing back to the landmark and not-so-landmark pieces of popular culture that reflected and defined the Cold War. The first episode will drop on November 9th, 2019, and future episodes will be released quarterly at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. All right, welcome back, folks. The episodes in this segment had an original broadcast date of September 24th, 1988, and the Superman story is Fugitive from Space, and it's written by Martin Pasco. And our synopses are brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. Star Labs discovers an alien spacecraft that appears to have crashed many years ago. Called to help document the find, Lois, Clark, and Jimmy join the Star Labs scientists as they venture inside the craft. Once inside, they discover two alien life forms in suspended animation. Jimmy accidentally knocks into a button that awakens them. One is a criminal intent on taking over the Earth, while the other is an intergalactic police officer. I don't believe it. It's some kind of egg? An egg now, but it was a creature with incredible power. I don't know the connection, but it had something to do with that suit. Then it did leave the ship. Was in it. I don't know. But there's no question the egg came from here. A refrigerated locker full of them. What is that? Ship's log. Captain V325 of Interworld Police, piloting prisoner transport vessel X12. Captain J967 and I were sent to Earth to recapture an escaped criminal, prisoner number Z475. Number Z-475 brought to Earth several native Chironians in an embryonic form you might call eggs. That's the thing that attacked me. 
number Z-475, intended to blow them on Earth, and in so doing, conquer your world. Fortunately, we apprehended both Z-475 and the eggs. They are here with us aboard the ship. Our vessel has just encountered a meteor shower. I do not know if any of us will survive, but beware. The eggs must be destroyed, for if they and prisoner Z-475 survive, your world will be in terrible danger. Which one of them is the prisoner, and which is Captain J-967? There is no question. I am Zalandra, and I... Oh, I... Oh! <coughs> Relax, Miss Lane. She's just having a slight fainting spell, like Argon. Argon? Then he did survive. Where is he? He must be destroyed before he tries to destroy your world as he tried to do mine. No! She is the one who must be destroyed. I am J-967. She stole one of my people's power suits to commit her crimes. He lies! <laughs> Superman must work it all out while battling giant beasts planted by one of the two aliens. So, before he left for Chiron, Argon even posed for pictures to make up for the ones Jimmy got fired for. Huh, speak of the devil. Hey, I told you I was coming in today. Trust me, Perry always forgets he fires me every Friday. Great Seeger's ghost! Olsen, what are you doing here? There's a first time for everything. I don't pay photographers to loaf around the city room. Get back to your dark room where you belong. See? <laughs> I told you. All right, so we got a little bit of mystery here in this one. Uh, a little bit of a whodunit. Uh, we, the only thing we really know is that the person who done it is in the spacesuit. So uh, basically, uh, the synopsis doesn't give it away. So let's uh, go through this, shall we? And we're going to start off with Lois and Jimmy kind of investigating some disturbances that Star Labs discovered. Superman arrives behind them because Star Labs needed him too. Uh, I'm not sure why Star Labs needed Lois and Jimmy. I can understand them needing Superman, but it seems like Lois and Jimmy are just kind of along for the ride so they can uh, be part of the story. So they find what they suspect to be a hundred-year-old starship. It is suitably creepy with a, with a fog over the air and smoke enveloping these two uh, aliens that are very unlike each other. One is a bluish uh, woman. The other is a hulking monster. Just from appearances, uh, you would think you could tell which is which, but you might not be right. So a Superman uses his X-ray vision to tell them uh, that the that the creatures are in uh, suspended animation. Then uh, Superman is going to bring the ship to Metropolis because that's where Star Labs is. Couldn't Star Labs set up kind of a portable lab right there? I mean, I question the wisdom of bringing an unknown alien spaceship who knows what kind of diseases or whatnot could be on it. I just question dropping this thing in the middle of downtown Metropolis. Star Labs could probably just as easily come to this spaceship, you know, kind of off in the woods out of the way where it's really not going to bother anybody. But nope, we have to bring it back to the lab. And how big is this lab that it can accommodate an alien spaceship? And I like how the show has time for slight humor as uh, Lois uh, taps Jimmy on the shoulder and scares the hell out of them as they're walking out. So now that we have this person uh, putting on some kind of a spacesuit and floating about the ship, he's a definitely some kind of alien, and we're not quite sure which of the aliens that it is. When he speaks, he speaks to a modulated uh, voice that sounds male, but without seeing the face, we can't really be sure. 
he uh, threatens the uh, security guard and uh, zaps him with some kind of ray. And, uh, you know, he's still floating around. And as we're following the alien, we get this nice shot of a bridge and uh, Metropolis in the background. Detail work on this show is very good. So the alien puts this little rock-like thing uh, with tentacles under the, underneath it, kind of under the bridge, and he uh, zaps it and makes it grow. So that's uh, going on for now, and uh, we have a great scene in the Daily Planet office of uh, Perry firing Jimmy basically for being a crappy photographer. Great Caesar's ghost, Olsen. You call these pictures? They look like night photography in the black hole of Calcutta. Jeepers, Chief. It's not my fault the energy from the ship ruined my exposures. Olsen, don't call me cheap no don't call me for references you're fired gosh jimmy aren't you upset nah it's friday right yes so so he always fires me on friday and every monday he forgets he did it have a nice weekend guys see you monday lois there's trouble at star labs get over there pronto uh, mind if I join you? Sorry, Clark. I always prefer my bylines with one name on them. Whatever Jimmy was trying to get a picture of, the pictures didn't come out very good. Which is a common reoccurrence in Jimmy's life. And Jimmy is not taking his uh, termination seriously. And I really wasn't taking it very seriously anyway. And he even points out that, you know what? He fires me every Friday. I'll be back Monday. I guess getting fired on Friday and rehired on Monday is a great way to get your weekends off. So... This Daily Planet stuff really feels on point. So, meanwhile, Lois is going to uh, Star Labs uh, as this creature that uh, was deposited under the bridge hatches in the water. So now, for some reason, because he was uh, denied uh, being allowed to travel with Lois, Clark is just walking across the bridge here like he's got nothing better to do. And the quick short rip and Superman is going to fight an alien monster. Again, Superman finding monsters. I wonder if uh, these monsters have souls. Apparently they do, because Superman doesn't really smack them around either. But he can't blow on it and freeze, freeze it. And basically what that does is it just kind of blows the alien creature back into uh, this rock-like thing that it came from. But I'm not sure what this other alien is up to, but he's going into the sewer uh, for right now. And uh, as he lands in the sewer, a rat scurries away when the alien shows up. So another little nice detail. He uh, plants another creature, and uh, he also needs more energy. So he goes back to the ship. And now, uh, apparently the security guard says he saw somebody in the spacesuit kind of hanging around. But uh, no one's taking the security guard seriously because the spacesuit is back. And both of our alien friends are back in cryostasis, too. So the first one to awake is this big, ugly alien with long teeth. And he uh, demands an explanation. So he has tons of questions, and he passes out on contact with the Earth's atmosphere. And uh, he was going to tell us who the woman in stasis was, but he passes out immediately. Superman, meanwhile, still fighting the creature, and he freezes that back into an egg. And uh, Superman uh, kind of connects the egg to the spacesuit, and uh, then he finds uh, in a compartment, he finds a bunch of eggs, kind of like the ones uh, that hatched the two monsters in Metropolis. So, as they're trying to figure out what's going on, we have a convenient captain's log to kind of deliver the necessary exposition, and I like how the show goes to kind of a sepia tone to discuss the flashbacks. It's a common uh, cinematic trick. Uh, well, I don't know if it's cinematic. It's something TV does a lot of. Uh, sometimes if you go into the past, you get black and white or sepia, you know, kind of a different, a little different color tone to differentiate between the past and the present. So apparently we're led to believe that the big alien wants to use the monsters to take over the Earth, and uh, their prison ship kind of got caught in a meteor shower, and that's how it wound up on Earth. So now, uh, all of a sudden, uh, the woman is out of stasis, uh, 
And then she passes out kind of the way the other guy did. Lots of aliens passing out in this episode. So now all the aliens are fighting over who the bad alien is. And I guess uh, at first, I guess the big guy attacking Superman and grabbing Lois tells us what we need to know. But you never know. We could be wrong. Just because he's big and ugly doesn't necessarily mean he's the bad guy. Although most of the time that does. So the alien tells Lois that he helped her because he needs her. And meanwhile, the other one, the uh, bluish uh, green woman, uh, Zalandra, she's trying to convince Superman to help her. And they're both <laughs> behaving very poorly. And at first, I'm still not sure which one to believe. And uh, Argon, he's uh, the big ugly creature that has Lois, said Zalandra needed radiation and uh, and the way things are going, uh, she should have it soon. In the next scene, when she's with Superman, Zalandra pretty much confirms that yes, she is the villain of this piece and tricks Superman into using his X-ray vision on one of the eggs, and hatching another monster. Then you mean Argon has already prepared some of the eggs for hatching? Yes, and preventing that is even more important than finding him. But we have to find the eggs. Easier done than said when you have X-ray vision. There's one now, in the sewer. X-ray vision hatched the Kairani. You planned this all the time. You're the prisoner, not Argon. Of course, you fool. That was my plan all along. And I'm wondering if why, why can't he just freeze it again, like he did the first one. And then she has another neat trick. Uh, Zalandra duplicates the creature. Now there's two of them. So now that we're back at the Daily Planet roof, uh, Lois was supposed to find Superman, but he kind of looks like uh, through his battle with the two aliens, he found her. There are a lot of coloring errors in this show. The S has been inverted in color several times. I don't understand how that happens. Superman's S is one of the most recognized symbols around. How do you get that color wrong? How do you make the interior red and the and the S symbol yellow? I don't get it. So now uh, Argon comes to play and basically uh, puts the creature back into the egg. And Zalandra, meanwhile, a very ham-fisted villain, does a lot of talking. Apparently, uh, according to Marvel Wolfman, uh, the studio wanted a lot of dialogue. We're going to get a lot of monologues from the villain throughout the show. So now Superman turns his heat vision on Zalandra, and uh, she basically uh, goes into a chrysalis. Apparently, uh, the woman form before him is kind of uh, her caterpillar form. You know, how caterpillars kind of go into a chrysalis and turn into a butterfly. Well, she's going to go in and turn into one of those big, ugly creatures that Superman has been fighting. So now we've got another one that talks. And then just as Superman, she tells Superman that she won't let him freeze them again. He freezes them again. It almost seems like the episode saying, okay, we're out of time. We need to end this now. And it just kind of ends. They're like, okay, time's up. Blows them out and the episode's over. But not before we have one final scene. Uh, how the ending pays off Jimmy's previous comment about how Perry always forgets that he fires Jimmy on Friday. As he comes out, we're meant to think that Perry remembers that he fired Jimmy. But then he kind of just demands to go to the dark room and uh, develop photos. This episode is as good as the first, but in a different way. It has time for interplay between the planet staff and uh, the other characters, which is something you really don't have a ton of time for in previous uh, Superman animated series. So, This show is, an, like I said, a nice mashup of both pre-crisis and post-crisis Superman ideas, and I'm looking forward to more as we go on. But before we do uh, close this thing out, we've got the Ken Family album story, The Supermarket, and our synopsis is as follows. Martha Kent takes young Clark on their first shopping trip together. She has a hard time instructing Clark not to use any of his superpowers while in public. So here we go, back to the back to the book here, and 
only a superpowered baby can make a trip to the supermarket into an adventure. Well, that's not true. Normal, normal babies can too, but super babies outdo them in every way. I don't remember my first time in the supermarket, and I'm sure Ma Kent will never forget this. Clark promises not to use superpowers, but he does it anyway by accident and says he's sorry. Clark, you know, like most kids, wants to please. And uh, Clark is uh, stacking the cans to the ceiling, and he is on the on the beam near the ceiling. And after they get Clark down, huh, you see in the background the cans kind of wobbling and uh, falling. Kind of The, the uh, stacked cans kind of remind me of the stacked books in the uh, library in the uh, aforementioned Ghostbusters film. So Ma leaves Clark alone for a second, which is a bad idea. Bad idea to leave any kid alone for any extended period of time. But he uh, kind of raids the candy, and now he's stuffing stuff into his pocket. So when Ma admonishes Clark, uh, this other girl starts crying, and that leads to a rather forced uh, confrontation with the girl's mother. I didn't think that part was particularly necessary. And why would the girl think Martha was dressing her when Clark was right behind her? It doesn't make any sense. That part didn't do anything for me. But Clark knows what he wants, and uh, now he's after the hot dogs, and Martha just buys the whole lot because he cooked them right there at the deli counter. So as they're leaving, uh, everyone they've encountered is watching them go, and probably glad that they're leaving. Ma Ken is probably going to have to do her shopping uh, somewhere else from now on. So And the trip ends with uh, Clark uh, carrying uh, the truck home. And I will bet that it's the last time Ma will bring him to the supermarket. You know, nothing great about that story. It's just a lot of fun. Like I said before, the myths and adventures of Super Baby can be a lot of fun, if nothing else. I think Toddler Clark has played very well. It's Like I said, clearly he wants to please, like all kid, but as all kids do, he goes overboard. And that concludes uh, my uh, initial coverage of uh, the Ruby Spears Superman. Next time, I will be continuing with the Ruby Spears with the Superman story by the uh, Skin on the Dragon's Teeth and the Kent Family album at the Babysitters. And then the Superman story, Cybron Strikes, and the Ken family album, first day of school. So until next time, feedback is always welcome. Manascreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over the Facebook group, just put Manascreen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Manascreencast. So until next time, folks, we're all on the same team. Good night. <laughs>